Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. I am thinking today about the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The last chapter of Dr. King's last book is titled The World House. And he talks in that chapter about how while we are fighting domestically for justice and equality, we are actually part of a global struggle in a global society, we have to bear that in mind as we move forward. And I'm thinking of that today because we are indeed citizens of the world. And, and the challenges and the news of what's going on around the world today can be overwhelming and, and painful and, and, and scary, right? We're watching people running for and fearing for their lives in Afghanistan. More than 1,400 people have died in the earthquake in Haiti, and they're seeking international assistance to try to recover from that uh, tragedy. COVID and the Delta variant are racing across the country and the globe, putting people back in hospitals across the country and the, and, and the world. And wildfires are again raging in the West. And a recent United Nations report called climate change, quote, code red for humanity. So that's a lot. And that's what we need to be able to be grappling with. But on the plus side, there was another recent development in the news that offers hope. And even though that message has somewhat been hidden in the numbers, but we're going to try to lift that up in today's podcast, right? So the Census Bureau just released the results of the 2020 census, and the numbers are actually quite encouraging for the prospect of addressing all of these problems we're facing in our world house. And so in this global society, the United States government can have a huge impact on what happens for better or for worse. And so who leads that government? Who sets its priorities and policies in terms of international affairs, world health, climate change, and so much else is determined by our elections. And so elections are essentially in this country currently a referendum and a battle over who is in this country and who this country is for. As we said before, we are engaged in this major struggle around, are we a white nation that somewhat tolerates some people of color and looks with contempt on the rest of the world? Or are we a multiracial democracy that is connected to and a responsible member of this world house? And so in that context, the census numbers are actually very, very encouraging for our domestic elections. And then by extension, our leadership in this country and the country's role in the larger world. So we'll be getting into all of that in today's podcast. And if the census is about anything, it's about data. And so for that conversation, I'm joined today, not just by my co-host, Charlene Chang, back from her second cross-country car trip, but also by our favorite data doctor, Dr. Julia Martinez-Artega. So how are you both? How are you navigating these challenges, uh, including sending your kids back to actual school buildings in the time of COVID and Delta? Hey, Steve. I'll jump in first. I'm doing overall well. By the way, it wasn't a cross-country trip as much as a up the Pacific West Coast. the entire country. (laughs) Into, so we live in California, Northern California, and we drove all the way from Northern California to British Columbia, interior British Columbia, where my in-laws live. And it was a two-day mad dash car drive trip on the first leg because we had to get all these requirements met, um, take a test and then cross the border within a certain amount of time from the test results. And then on the way back, we took three days and it was a a lovely trip. But I I just wanted to say that thank you so much for touching upon all the different challenges that the world and globe 
is facing right now. And I definitely got sort of a really increased wake up call this year in that increasingly over the summers when we go to British Columbia, there is uh, what we call smoky summers. And this year, between the drive, we saw all of the remnants of fires along the West Coast in the US. And while we were in Canada, the vast majority of the time, it was really thick, smoky air from the fires and uh, was a lot of time spent indoors. So I just feel as as a parent and as a citizen of this globe, just this heightened awareness and definitely a lot of feelings of concern and fear and sadness, but also trying to channel that into some sort of action. And thank you for reminding me that elections matter and that one of the things we can feel hopeful about is that if we can elect the right people, that is one you know major facet to ensuring that our kids have, you know, a healthy globe to live on and healthy air to breathe. Uh, And speaking of kids, I have a kid-free, you know, blocks of time now because my daughter is in school. And yes, there's a bit of, in the back of our mind, some concern about Delta, but overall for mental health, which is also health, it's fantastic for her. She loves being in school with teachers and and friends. And let's say for mental health, fantastic for mom and dad. (laughs) So that's my... Little update. And I'm so glad that Julie is going to be with us today. It's been way too long. Hey, Julie. Hi there. Great to be with you again. I'm so happy to um, have you here and can't wait to get into some of our you know, talks today. I know we got a lot to talk about. Uh, as we all know, Steve, I wanted to just, yeah, just say about the U.S. Census, the U.S. Census Bureau, like you said, they released demographic data um, last week from the census uh, 2020. And let's just say, yes, based on already, Steve, myself, you and Julie, we've been online, like texting, slacking back and forth, the three of us, we have feelings, we have things to say. And the importance, again, because it's like this important um, information about who we are as a country and demographically and the implications for what's happening in this country right now and for the future. And to me, it just confirms what I keep thinking about, Steve, is your first book title, Brown is the New White. Brown is what we are. America is browning, and it is increasingly a fact, and people just need to stop pretending like it's not happening. So to frame up the conversation today for our listeners, again, we'll be diving into the census data with Julie, Woo-hoo! and she will get her data expert hat on and break it down for us. And then we'll talk about, Steve, what you often call the white data geeks. We're going to call some folks out and explain what they're getting wrong in terms of the analysis of the data and many of the current hot takes happening post-census 2020, and just in general, what they often get wrong in terms of what Democrats need to win. And finally, we're going to close out the show. We're going to touch briefly upon what's happening in Afghanistan. So let's get with it. Julie, you've been tweeting out some of your takes in terms of the census data, and you've also raised some really good points as we've been preparing for the show that I'd really like our listeners to get um, some insight from you about and find it really interesting. I think they'll find it really interesting and useful to um, frame it up. We're going to focus on specific parts of the data that are most telling about the political potential of the country's demographic changes, namely, and this is fascinating, the rise in multiracial identities, ding, ding, and Asian American Pacific Islander, ding, ding, and Latino populations. We know about all three of those. 
<laughs> Steve, before we do a deep dive into the data, I wanted to check in with you first. And what are your main takeaways from the census? Yeah, so I'm sorry, you're talking about the the having feelings, right? So the, the first data point is the number of posts that Julie puts into the Slack channel with her take and her thoughts and her reactions to the whole census view. So I look forward to that discussion. So I think the big takeaway, but I, I think it's just like, well, the fundamental piece is that the country is getting more diverse, racially diverse, right? Brown is the new white. I might actually start using that phrase a little bit more. And that should not be lost in the sub points to that. So the headline is that the white population in this country has fallen from 64% at the time of the last census in 2010 to 58% now. And so we are less white, more diverse, more people of color. And that's the top line takeaway in a country that's been wrestling for centuries regarding whether we're a white country or not. That's the dominant reality. And I think the one has the most far-reaching ramifications. And I do think it's significant historically and also currently politically. It's historically, I was saying, 17, the, the immigration law in this country was that you could only be a citizen if you were white. And that was the law explicitly until the 1950s and in practice to the 1960s. Now, just, you know, you know, I'm working on, you mm. know, trying to finish this book from that manuscript. I hadn't fully appreciated how much of the Civil War was not just about ending slavery, but it was about, are we a white country or not? And they debated fiercely in the 14th Amendment, would they extend protections to specifically the Chinese, and that was rejected. And that's just like, like they begrudgingly included African-Americans, but explicitly rejected, including other people of color to be able to preserve the centrality of whiteness to this country. So then as a result of that history, and people don't like to talk about this in reality in terms of our demographic changes, but the result of this is this has been an unnaturally white country for the majority of this country's history. And the result today is that most old people are white because the U.S. used to be 90% white, and then most younger people are people of color. And so just the reality is that in demographic trends, most of the people who die are white, and most of the people who are born are people of color. And so we highlighted this in Brown as to know it when we had this chart around saying that every single day, 7,000 more people of color were added to the population versus 1,000 white. And so we were trying to flag that this was a major trend that was happening. And these census results affirm that. And then I just think the other thing is to appreciate is that Trump and his team did everything possible to not have this occur. And that Stephen Miller, his, like one of his chief aides, his whole focus was on trying to undo immigration reforms and make the U.S. as white as possible. They tried to intimidate people from taking the census. And there's so many things they tried to do to not have these numbers show that the U.S. was less white. Not only did they fail in that, but they had somewhat succeeded because immigration dropped significantly over the past few years for the first time in a long time. And yet, Despite that, you still have this dramatic transformation. So the fundamental reality that it shows that I think we can't lose sight of, that the demographic revolution is real, it's inexorable, it's going to be the dominant force in this country for the next decade. And the question is, are we going to, in terms of our politics, in terms of our culture, in terms of our society, grapple with and adjust and, and embrace that reality or not? But it will be the defining feature of this country for the next decade.
So that's a headline. Underneath that headline is some data points and some very important data points because that will drive much of public policy, politics, et cetera. So Julie, as you were uh, beginning to flag for us in your multiple Slack post, what do you have for us in terms of what the key data points are about the, about the census? Oh, a lot, but we're going to try to winnow this down to some key things to share here. So, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely right. One of the primary things that we're seeing from this new data is that so much of what you wrote about in Brown is a New White was indeed correct, right? There are a well, lot of people who really- What I wrote about, <laughs> what Charlene edited about- in which you validated with all the data charts and points in that book. So it was a collective right. endeavor. Of this, this, is, team. this is true. Thank you. And there have been a lot of people who really have challenged those ideas, though, right, over the few years since the book was published. And I think, you know, we now have definitive, neutrally gathered government data that that, in fact, backs up what we were saying even more so than the data that we presented in the book. So to your point, the country is indeed much less white than it was uh, just 10 years ago. The Brookings Institution has written a few really good pieces on this. They said, quote, over the 2010 to 2020 decade, the white population share declined in all 50 states, which I think is remarkable. And in several of those states, it was a marked decline. The one exception is Washington, D.C., which, you know, is its own story unto itself. But that's um, the, the 50 states are indeed very different. They look very different than they did just 10 years ago. Second, you know, this point you made about young people is really key because of course, you know, we all have multiple identities. We've got people who are young, people who are young tend to also be people of color, right? And young people are increasingly an important part of the growing racial ethnic diversity within the United States. So the same Brookings report also finds that uh, Latino youth, Asian American youth, and those youth that identify with two or more races contributed to almost all of the under 18 age groups population gains. So in other words, where you see people who are non-adults, kids, uh, increasing as a share of the population and just increasing in raw numbers, that's almost all attributable to kids of color, which is just wild. So because of this growth, people of color make up more than half of the country's total youth population, with Latino youth comprising 25, almost 26% of them, and Black youth comprising over 13%. And a critical point that I want to make about sort of this browning of the country, as, as you said, is that because the brown folks will become the majority, it's not just that they're going to become the majority of voters, as we often talk about, but they're also going to become the, they'll grow up, they'll become as they age into the working population, into the majority of our country's workers, right? And the implication of that is that we need to invest in those brown youth now so that they they themselves and their children can contribute to the levels that our country is going to need, right? Because it's um, it's not as if our nation's future just depends on their success. It actually does. They will be the vast majority of workers, uh, you know, when we look ahead 20 years. And so even if you 
people are not interested from an altruistic uh, level, there is a very pragmatic reason to be investing in brown youth at this point in time. And if you think about it, you know, we have precedent for really focusing our efforts as a country on particular demographic groupings, right? So if you think back to post-World War II, you had hundreds of thousands of men returning from overseas, having been soldiers for the past few several years, and, you know, coming back into the country, needing something to do after those years. The country faced facts as a nation and developed programs like the GI Bill, right, which was essentially a new deal for veterans. And through that, uh, you know, just extensive training happened very broadly, very widely, not as much for people of color, clearly, as for whites. But we trained mostly white men for jobs and also sent them to college, like literally paid for them to go to college and shift from being, you know, a kid who was going to return to the farm and, uh, you know, be a farmhand to somebody who was now trained up to become an accountant or an economist or a lawyer, Right. So within one generation, we moved a whole uh, segment of society into a level of training that enabled them to actually be even more contributing members of society than they otherwise would have if we just left things on track. So now many would argue, I certainly would, that we need to do the same sort of thing with youth of color by acknowledging all of the disinvestment that's happened to these communities over the past 200 plus years, right, within these communities of color. And, you know, we need to take these proactive measures in order to change course. And I was researching today, working on the book, um, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was uh, one of the leading conservative justices, went to law school, and I believe went to college, funded by the GI Bill, Mm. and then took that to then go attack affirmative action and everything (laughs) for people of color for decades. And Julie, what I was going to say, I was listening. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. I was listening with such interest to your just giving us this understanding of the various ways that, A, we need to start investing in youth of color, but also what are the precedents of our nation historically in having had the foresight and intentionally supporting certain groups in order to strengthen the economy and um, strengthen the country for for the long term. Uh, and I, I keep thinking about how there's there's definitely, a, I'm, I can imagine, a segment of our population that is listening to our podcast or maybe not, but, but looking at these census results from the latest census and thinking, basically, there goes the neighborhood, right? <laughs> that, <laughs> that, okay, so the next generation is predominantly brown, predominantly people of color, and there goes, quote unquote, the strength of our country because what they associate with people of color is poverty, is lack of education. And instead of and, and just kind of thinking of it as a, uh, you know, that they might perceive it as sort of a dismal view of what our future is slated to be, is on track to be, instead of us as a nation collectively thinking, no, what 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 can we do now rather than be in a denial about it, but to see it as a strength and what, what measures can we start putting in now? I mean, it is true that the majority of people living who are poor and and struggling socioeconomically are majority people of color, families of color, majority of youth who are not finishing uh, four-year high school, let alone going on to college 
um, and higher education are youth of color. And rather than just throwing our hands up and saying, well, that's the way it's always been, that's the way it's going to be, what can we start doing about that now to change that and to say, this is going to be the future adults, the future population and uh, of our nation? What can we start doing to invest in them now to make sure that they have the most, the greatest foundation possible, including health, by the way, healthcare is a whole other issue, but so that we can have the most robust population um, generations going forward, because this trend is not going to change. It's not like, oh, this will be the next adult population for the next 10 years, but then, you know, white majorities are coming back. I mean, that's just magical thinking. And of course, those of us who are people of color, we have personal interests vested, but even for the society as a whole, including white people, if they want to be part of this country um, and they are going to be part of this country, like what is their role and responsibility and what is what are they going to do to overall change their thinking, including Democrats, um, Democratic leaders who are who are white. So I know yeah, you gave me a lot that, of food for thought. <laughs> yes. Well, you're, that word we is doing a lot of work, right? So I know. Is, I know. You know, this, I'm always getting on everyone's yes. case about who do we mean by we. Yes. But, so um, this is somebody yeah. who spent yesterday <laughs> understanding <laughs> what I didn't fully grasped that after Brown versus Board of Education came out in the mid-1950s saying we should have to desegregate our schools, Prince Edward County, Virginia, shut down its entire school system for <laughs> five years. So mm -hmm. rather than educate mm -hmm. the we, and then they set up their whole separate private system for white people. Had like a thousand buses rolling throughout the county to move the white kids to the private schools while the kids of color had no education and nothing to do. So this notion around we and that this there, that there's a common social contract, frankly. And that that I think is what just is what the essence is, right? You're talking about in terms of the the there goes the neighborhood. Mm. Um spoken as somebody who did desegregate a neighborhood in 1964 when we moved in in our place in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. That you know, Charles Blow just wrote this column um, after the census data came out saying that um, it was a terrifying census for white nationalists. Mm. And it's true. It's showing if you go in that regard. So that's why I think the other question is, are progressives and Democrats going to grasp this message? We was talking about the young people, the majority of young people. How much time and energy and effort and discussion do you hear about what are we doing as progressives, as Democrats to win the support of 16 and 17 year olds? who will be turning 18 versus how much time, energy and we, we spend in how are we going to get people who voted for Trump to actually switch their minds and vote for Democrats? So mathematically, it doesn't make sense to have that, that obsession given what this census data actually shows. And so that's actually something that uh, Ron Brownstein wrote about in his recent CNN piece around just what is the realistic upside in terms of Democrats chasing after white working class conservative voters and I think what this data shows is that we have some progressive whites. So the majority of young people are people of color. And there's a good chunk of young white people who are progressive. And so you add all of that up together. That's a very promising future for those of us who are quite happy with what's happening to the neighborhood. Yes. We're seeing it as a more robust, you know, interesting, diverse, richer, culturally and, and stronger neighborhood. And by the way, we were also, Steve, my family, the we I'm talking about is my family, uh, being a family of Chinese Americans, my parents being Chinese immigrants. We moved into an all white suburban coastal Jersey 
neighborhood in the 70s and it was definitely like there goes the neighborhood it was like yeah. they did, people didn't know what to make of it they had never seen a family of color come in and let alone asians were just we were like aliens i mean it's like i think they knew who black people were and that would have been a different dynamic for sure yeah. but asian no, immigrants I, oh, they were absolutely. like what are we what are you yes lots of us have had this experience i mean cory booker talks about a similar deal when he was in uh, uh his family in new jersey but for my family i didn't actually even know the story until 2012 i was having dinner with my dad hay street grill and susan and her father and so i knew that our they wouldn't sell our house to my parents because they were black in 1964. And so they went to get this lawyer, white lawyer, civil rights lawyer, uh, Byron Kranz, to buy the house and then deed it over to our parents. So that much I knew. I didn't know that one of the neighbors called a meeting of the other neighbors. And I really didn't know that my dad like crashed the meeting. <laughs> I was all like, I had no idea he was such a like, you know, little closet radical or whatnot. <laughs> but what was said at this meeting was, um, what are we going to do about Byron Kranz? Are we going to string him up? Ooh. Wow. And so this Man. whole there goes the neighborhood thing. That's so intense. It's not a long That's what I was, I was saying. Issue. Like if it's a black family, it's a whole other dynamic. Yeah. But it's wow. So Julie, I wanted to touch base on the I know we could go on this stuff. Well, you and I in particular go on these issues forever, but there's a piece about this that I wanted to touch base with in terms of the implications of how you collect the data and what boxes you even have to check. Like there was a discussion before about like, oh, Latinos want to be white because they check this box that says white. Can you talk a little bit about the structural problem in the census in terms of how it distorts the picture around uh, what the actual racial groups are? And actually, have you, you've dealt with some of that in terms of your own multidimensional family situation. So, yes, and it's somewhat nerdy, but it's actually really important that we understand the impact of how the questions are asked and how, they're pro how our responses are processed and recorded by the folks at the Census Bureau because the paper forms and the way they're laid out with the questions can really impact on the responses we get back, right? So those census forms used in 2020 use a concept where Latinos are counted as an ethnicity and separately we ask everybody what their race is, right? And so they're separate. So you don't, somebody like me who is Mexican-American, Chicano, doesn't get to say that's my race, which is how for the most part, you know, in a U.S. society, contemporary U.S. society, others would look at me and think of me. I have to choose whether or not I say yes or no to am I a Latino? And then separately, I have to pick one of the races that's presented and on the list that's given to me, right? So 2020 made some big improvements over the way the 2010 census collected the data. And those improvements, thanks to the you know, really great work of people at the Census Bureau who did a lot of research and testing of different question formats, they actually did a tremendously great job at uh, collecting a more accurate picture of who's Latino and who is Latino and says they're a combination of Native American and white or African and white and, you know, just the different combos that can exist. So we saw an incredible improvement and the numbers that we're seeing on the multiracial people counts really reflect the work that went into changing up those questions. But it's very confusing and it's going to be confusing for people to connect the dots back to that 2020 data because they're not going to match up apples to apples because they were 
you know, sort of asking slightly different questions in slightly different ways that had really big impacts on accounts. And, you know, it's going to create a lot of confusion, but I think we're moving toward a more accurate, better count than we had before. Right. And a more fundamental level, this whole notion around separating out ethnicity and race. And so Latinos can be an ethnicity, but not a race. I mean, the whole thing is actually illogically organized, right? To the extent of which the prior census director wrote a whole book called what Race Am I, right? And he talks about how <laughs> incorrectly, and you've raised this to yourself, Julie. It's like, you look at this thing, it's like, you check white, you take, you know, Latina. So it's structurally a problem. I mean, the good, so that's why I just, you know, maybe finish this section up, but the, the, the bottom line again is that the country is more of color significantly so. So the sub data is actually still somewhat murky, but the good data, I think as Julia touched upon, that there actually is a good head now over there, the census director, who can help to put things in order so that hopefully going forward, we'll have a higher quality of data that's more accurate and less politicized. So I just wanted to add one last thing, which is, A, I guess I don't really remember filling out the census form, but in preparing for this show, you know, we all took a close look at the form again. And I was just kind of, I'm just going to say appalled to see so clearly that what is listed as options for race is white, black, but not Asian. There is no category with the word Asian for race at all. And yet, weirdly, all these, what I would call like ethnicities or even nationalities are listed. So Chinese is listed as a race option and Japanese and Korean and and so on and so forth for specifically Asian, like Asian ethnicities and and nationalities. And it just didn't make any sense to me. It felt like a real hot mess still. Uh, I guess, you know, for me, I identify as Asian as my race, Chinese as my ethnicity. And the fact that they didn't have that clearly on the form still made me feel, feel like whoever is in charge, the collective people who are in charge of coming up with the final form, like they don't really understand how people of color identify themselves and our lived experiences. There's almost nobody I know who's Chinese American. If I ask them what's your race, that they would say Chinese. They would say mm-hmm. they would say Asian. So it's like who are they? Who are the, right. who's their focus group? And it, it makes me think that again, I think the majority of people making the these decisions must be white or not enough diverse array of people of color to say, hey, listen, that doesn't make sense. Or I think we should get a really good focus group to find out these major groups of people, what is the race that they identify with? What's the word? Yeah, no, it's definitely, that's why this guy wrote this book, right, from the census, because it's, it's the whole notion that, again, only Latinos can be an ethnicity, but then what about the race part? So splitting out race and ethnicity, and what is even the distinction between how you draw that line? There's a whole additional question, set of issues around people uh, from Middle Eastern origin. They've got like a whole task force and a grouping around how can they be classified, should they be classified, et cetera. So, and you're right, it's embedded in the context of who has political power, which voices are they going to listen to, and what's the level of uh, cultural competence they have in designing these forms that determine who we think is actually within the country. Yeah. Oh, I have so much to say about Middle Eastern. My Middle Eastern friends who in the census form, they're prompted to mark white. They are like, that's one that's pretty much for the longest time been their only option. They will tell you they do not get treated as white in this country. So let's talk about like, you know, real lived experiences. So Steve, like you just so often say that there's so many implications of this data and it being collected correctly and properly because of how much this this data is used including for 
um, political analysts in terms of what the different parties need to do to win. And so wanted to segue to just checking in with you. I know you have some things to say about these white data geeks and how they use this data and often, unfortunately, improperly. Right. And it's important because it gets to how tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars are allocated politically. And that's flows from an analysis and an interpretation of the data around who comprises the country and who comprises the electorate, and then what are the political leanings of those sectors, right? So in 2016, Nate Cohn over the New York Times had this big, big ass piece about, you know, there are more white people than you think. And he and I actually got into it on Twitter and he's all trying to say, I'm not going to debate this anymore. I've, I just wrote 7,000 words on it, to which I responded, well, I wrote 70,000 words on it and I don't think you're correct. But part of his problem was what we were just talking about is he did not factor in Latinos that, who would check the white box. And so he took that data point and added it into there are more white people. But what there were were Latinos who had, who had hit the white button. And then that chan translated the data to him thinking there are all these different, there are all these white people. So if you think there's this enormous number of white people and white people tend to vote more conservative, which they do then that influences your policy and your politics and your direction. And they kind of a similar thing. He's on this like mission around trying to say, well, voter turnout doesn't help. First of all, I'm all like, that's not where Democrats are putting their money anyway. So why are you still hyped up and trying to knock that down? But this, this, the, the Pew just did this report showing that the significantly larger percentage of the non-voters are people of color. And so then... What do you mean it doesn't help? If we get more non-voters to vote, you're getting more people voters of color and more progressives. You've got that. And then you've got this guy, David Shore, who's a, you know, 29, I think maybe you're a white guy from Florida who I'm sure has never been in a black barber shop or too uh, unlikely to a quinceanera in terms of understanding people of color. See, I know what a quinceanera is. <laughs> yes. And so he's like become like this expert around, well, particularly Latino voters. And so the and he's lifted up around so, and he's tying it to say, well, defund the police demand, hurt Democrats with Latinos. But he's actually then citing a data point, and I believe it's from Hondurans, but don't quote, quote me on it, but certainly not Mexican Americans and not Cubans and not the dominant groups that comprise uh, the Latino population. And so he trying to use tweak this data point to show that progressive policies hurt with this part of the population. So all of which is to say that it's so important to understand this data correctly and to have it interpreted by people who understand the communities in terms of determining what should be the politics, the priorities and the direction and the policies we put forward. Because there are, there's a whole political calculation made around what to move and what not to move. And that's based upon who we think is in the country, who we think is in the population and who we think is in the electorate. So before we go, Steve, I did want to check in with you really quickly about one major headline in the news, and that's um, what's happening in Afghanistan. Again, this is following Biden's decision to remove the U.S. military from the country once and for all. It was followed by the rapid rise of the Taliban into state power and the current um, devastating humanitarian crisis that's happening there. And we don't often talk about you know foreign affairs and what's happening outside the U.S., but during some of our meetings, definitely all of us were talking about what's happening, and it's, it's certainly weighing on a lot of people's minds. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how, if at all, does what's happening in Afghanistan right now 
fit in with the framing and the messages that you and those of us, our team here at Democracy in Color, have been putting out over the past several years. Yeah, I think, and I thought actually Wanda spent a lot of time last night reading different analyses and takes from a number of different people around what's actually going on. And so I think that, well, the top headlines is actually complicated. And that's been manifested in the fact that the United States has been there for 20 years and has not had quote unquote success, however you want to define that. But fundamentally, it's a very complicated situation. It's a very complicated situation involving a lot of uh, non-white people and a lot of different non-white countries, including and some largely white countries, including Russia. So it's all very complicated to start with. So that's like a headline in terms of understanding what's going on there. And then attached to that then is how do you approach that complexity in terms of the power, the force, the impact, the role of the United States of America? And the Washington Post had this excellent article um, recently. It's called From Hubris to Humiliation. America's warrior class contends with the abject failure of the Afghanistan project. And so what it fundamentally is saying is that the U.S. has had this level of hubris that we know everything. We can impose all these solutions in any other part of the world. And everybody should just be replicating exactly what our model of government is. Pause to make the point that this country founded in the 19th century did not actually have democracy until 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed. So I'm not sure we are that much of an example for the rest of the world. But the point being that the people who've been in charge in this country have not appreciated the complexity and they've not had the humility and not had the cultural competence to understand and devise solutions and are constructive interventions in very complicated situations. And I think that's a fundamental takeaway for me. And so then that gets to the question about then, well, who are the people running this country and who are the people guiding our foreign policy? And that comes back to the fundamental question around elections. And then lastly, it's this point around the diversity piece. So you were talking about, Charlie, your family is an immigrant family from China. And Chinese foreign policy looks different whether you're solely looking at it through a white cultural lens that simply sees China as a, you know, with no complexity to it as this enemy in nation, or if you have more understanding of the different dynamics and you have people in those positions understanding that level of cultural history and connection. And that is why we have to have a political leadership that reflects our population, because if you reflect our population as reflected in the census data, then you will have a political leadership that is much more connected to the diversity and complexity of the world overall. Right. And what's the stat that you you often quote, right? The rest, of the, in terms of the entire world, it's what, 80, 89%? 85% people of color is the that's right. <laughs> we think that you know the whole world is white. That's just because the U.S. and which shows you the U.S. has been unnaturally white and intentionally made unnaturally white. And that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that uh, that is a word. And so that is all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook and subscribing to our newsletter. It comes out every week. You can subscribe at democracyincolor.com. And if you're listening to the podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment 
We read them and appreciate it. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith. <laughs>